0: Good morning. morning. Well, today we start uh, Philippians. Uh, We will be going uh, through this book. It should take us uh, anywhere from 12 to 14 weeks, depending on uh, the spirit and uh, God willing. Um, We will be walking through this book exegetically. Everybody say exegetically. Exegetically. Um, What that word means is to lead out from. Okay, so we'll be walking through this book chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse, as the old preachers used to say, precept upon precept, walking through this text exegetically. Here is why, okay? Um, I want you guys to see that we do this intentionally, okay? So we don't just pick books and go straight through them for fun. We do this with a purpose. We do this for a reason, um, and that reason is it allows the Word of God to choose the theme, So so I don't come up with a topic or I don't come up with a theme and, and then say, I would like to talk about marriage and then come to the Bible to support my ideas or my thoughts. Rather, what happens when you just teach straight through a book of the Bible is the Bible itself chooses the topic for you, okay? Let me tell you why that's a really good thing for you guys. It doesn't allow me to get on my theological hobby horses, That's a really good thing for you guys, okay? Because I have about four things that I would like to preach about all the time, um, and this keeps me from doing that, okay? So what we say here at Gospel Community Church all the time is our hope is to just open the Bible and say what it says, that, that's it. I, I have no wisdom to give you. I have no brilliant life lesson to teach you. But if we go to the Word of God, it is deep. It is rich. There is much here to, to be consumed. There is life in this book. And so our hope, our heart, what our, what our goal is, is just to open up the Word of God and simply say what it says. Amen? Amen. So the job of a preacher is not to make the Bible relevant, but it is to show the relevancy of the Bible. You guys get that? I, okay, here's the thing. We're not really creative with our series titles, are we? Okay? Philippians, that's it, right? What, what, what was our sermon series title last time? Ruth, the one before that? Jonah, right? We're, we're not, because we, we don't wanna mess with it. <laughs> We, we just want to say what it says. Uh, again, th- this is not words from me. The, the pulpit is a sacred place. Preaching is a sacred thing. And, and a pastor and a preacher should never, ever, ever, ever use it for his platform. What the preacher should do and what his job is is to utilize this platform to preach God's word. Not, not my word. Um, and, and not the word of anyone else. But the preacher's job is to proclaim Christ and his word. Um, And so that's what our hope is, traveling through this series and preaching it this way. We're intentional about the way we preach it. In addition, not only does the Bible itself choose the theme, but two, exegetical teaching connects us to a better understanding of the text by understanding its context, Okay? It connects us to a better understanding of the text by connecting us to its context. You guys get, so um, here's how to be a cult leader or a heretic. Okay? Take the Bible out of context. <laughs> Select random verses and, and pull them away from the Bible's original intent. That's how you get to be a cult leader. That, that's how you err into heresy, Okay is by pulling the Bible out of its original context, okay? So for most of us, um, you guys probably aren't cult leaders, so, so what happens when, at least I hope not, um, what happens is when you take the Bible out of its context, what you do is you enter into a place of immaturity with the word of God, okay? Here's a great example. Um, as a pastor, um, you know, I, I invite people to church all the time. Okay? It's what I do. Hey, you, you should come to church, Um, get connected to a church, be a member of a church. I I say that stuff to people all the time. And they'll say this, well, you know, wherever two or more are gathered, okay, Um, that is a great example of someone taking the scripture out, way out of context of what the intent of that is. What they're quoting there is Matthew 18, which is a text on church discipline. It's saying when you go to another brother or sister in Christ to call them out for sin, it is official church business because Jesus himself is there. Whether two or more are gathered, there I will be also. That's what Jesus is saying. When you confront someone about sin, I'm there. What it's not saying is when you and your buddy get together, that's church. That's not what that text says. What that person does, they've removed it from the context, and they've entered into a place of immaturity in their faith. So what our hope is, is the result of exegetical teaching, is to produce mature believers who hunger for the word of God. I want our church to be a people who are hungry for God's word. Here is a principle for churches and for especially church planting. And this is what some guys who were out ahead of me who had planted churches and been pastors for years, here's what they told me. They said, Kirk, what you draw people with is what you're gonna keep them with. So give them God's word. So, so we can have a killer band and, and sweet fog machines and lasers and sure, we, whatever. If that's what we draw you with, then that's what we'll keep you with. And we always have to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. The show has to get more and more elaborate. But if I just give you God's word, if I can just draw people with God's word, then that's what we keep people with. We just keep giving them God's word. And this is a fountain that will never, ever, ever run dry. So, um, that, that's our hope, that's my heart um, in preaching through Philippians, is that we just give you God's word. I just want to give you God's word. I just want to open up the Bible and just say what it says, okay? You, you guys in, in for that? Is that good? Okay. Let's do that then. So, um, here's what I want to do. I, I want to I do some appetizers. Can we do some appetizers? You guys want some appetizers um, for the book of Philippians? J- just, just listen to some of these. Th- this stuff is incredible. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. To live is Christ or to die is gain. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who both works to will And to work for his good pleasure. Or how about this one? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Or how about this one? Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await our Savior. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts. How about this? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say rejoice. My hope is that the power that is in these great words, the power that is in this book, will radiate out from it, and will land deeply within your soul. So I want to put these verses in context, okay, um, because this is like the most tweetable book there is, okay? This is the most memorable, tweetable, I mean, it, it's, it's so good, but when you separate it out, okay, so I can do all things through Christ, for some people, might become a call to muster some type of internal strength to, to step out of God's will. And, and I'm just, oh, I'm just going to do it. I can do all things to Christ, right? That, that's totally out of context. Or, or to say, rejoice, and always, again, I say rejoice, can become a call to muster some type of fake happiness in the face of real pain, okay? That, that's totally out of context, So these verses are rich, they're deep, so let's not remove the power from, let's not remove the depth of them by removing them from their context. So we want to plant them firmly in the context. So we're going to be going through this book, exegetically preaching it that way, leaving it in its own context, but before we get there, you guys know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do? Oh man, you nailed it. We're, we're going background, we're going history today, we're going to talk geography, we're going to talk about history, because I want us to see where this book is coming from, I want us to see how this church gets planted, why is Paul writing to it. So we're going to go on a um, a, a geographical, historical exercise um, through um, the Bible to land on this letter of Philippians. So that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to do all the background work so that next week when we come Back, we can really get up and go through this text. So it's important that you guys are here every Sunday. If you're not able to be here, go ahead and download the podcast so that you can travel through this book with us. Where this story begins is in Acts chapter 15. Okay, here's what's happened thus far Jesus Christ has come. God has stepped into human history. He's lived the life that we should have lived. He's died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. He has gone into the tomb. He stayed there for a while. He then resurrected and then ascended into heaven. Then we meet a guy named Paul, The first time that we meet him, he is at the execution um, of a man named Stephen. And Paul was a man who hated Christians, he hated the church, and he was a persecutor of God's church. He hunted Christians down and he threw them in jail or he killed them. That's what he did. And it says that he was breathing murderous threats against the church and he was on his way carrying uh, some letters to Damascus and Jesus shows up, blinds him, knocks him off of his horse, um, and then converts him changes his heart, and what happens is he turns into one of the most powerful missionaries ever to walk the planet, other than Jesus himself. So what we see is the Apostle Paul becomes the greatest missionary to ever walk the earth, and he did this through church planting, okay? So Paul's tactical solution to go and make disciples was to plant churches. That's what Paul does. He shows up to an area, and he doesn't just evangelize. He doesn't just proclaim the gospel, but, oh, does he proclaim the gospel? He then establishes a church. He creates a core group of people. He begins to disciple them, train them. He then, out of that group, raises up deacons. He then raises up elders, and then he gives the church over to them, and then he goes and does the whole thing again. We call that a catalytic leader. He goes and starts something, builds it, hands it off, and then goes and starts over. And this was Paul's MO. He was a church planter. Okay? So I want you guys to see this, that we're not starting a movement. You guys get that, right? Gospel community church is not starting a movement. We're We're a part of a movement. (laughs) We're we're joining in the movement of God. We're joining in. Because what happens is when churches get planted and started, there's this big excitement that we're doing something no one else has ever done. Except for it's been happening for thousands of years. We're joining into or stepping into um, what God has been doing since he ascended into heaven. Okay? Um, So church planting isn't a fad. It's not something new. It's not something cool that we created. Rather, it's a movement of God that's been going on for 2,000 years and will continue to go on until he returns. So that's what we see the Apostle Paul do. In Acts chapter 15, um, the gospel has spread out and non-Jews are getting saved. Okay, now, this was a big controversy. Why? Because all of these non-Jewish people are getting saved, um, and so the Jewish people think, well, you guys have to now adopt our customs. If you're going to take uh, our religion, you have to adopt our customs, meaning you have to get circumcised and uh, you have to obey all of the laws. Okay, now, you can imagine for Gentile dudes, that's kind of a big stumbling block, okay? You want to come to Christ? You got to get circumcised, Okay? That, that was a stumbling block for them. Um, and so all of these Jews are getting saved. And so what happens is the apostle Paul goes to the council in, in Jerusalem, and they declare, okay, look, if Gentiles are getting saved, let them get saved. They don't have to get circumcised. They, they don't have to adopt all of our rules and all of our customs. So what this does is it gives a great boost in um, Gentile evangelism. Uh, and, and so it, it just begins to spread everywhere, everywhere. So Paul has a vision from a man in Macedonia, beckoning him to come and to preach the gospel. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke leave the Middle Eastern setting of Asia Minor, jump on a boat, and head to Macedonia. They walk nine miles into Philippi, and at that moment, the gospel has made it to Europe. That's amazing that the gospel started out in Jerusalem And went out from there, and went out from there, and went out from there. And these guys got on a boat and sailed across the sea. And the gospel landed in Europe. And then churches were planted. And then more churches were planted. And the good news of the gospel began to go out and out and out and out. And more churches were planted and more churches were planted. Thus so that you as a believer could probably trace the lineage of the church that you got saved in back to these great men. And so we wanna continue in that legacy of seeing the gospel go out and planting more and more churches. So Paul's regular MO was to go into the synagogue. When he gets to a town, he wants to find the synagogue where the Jews are. He wants to go open the scroll of Isaiah, generally, and tell them that Jesus has come, the, the Messiah that you guys were looking for. He's here, his name is Jesus, and, and that's the way he would do it. But when he enters into Philippi, there's so few Jews there, um, that there's not even a synagogue. There's not a lot of believers in in God there, but the first person that he encounters once he gets into Philippi is a woman by the name of Lydia, which happens to be my daughter's namesake. So he encounters Lydia, and it says that she was a seller of purple goods, meaning that she was a wealthy woman And she had gathered in a prayer group at the city gates. And so the apostle Paul goes there and he begins to speak the gospel to her. And it's very interesting what the text says. It says, Then God opened her heart to hear the message of Paul. That's a part of a prayer for my daughter, is that God would open her heart so that she would hear the gospel. So she gets baptized, her whole house gets baptized, and at that moment, the church core group begins to form. Isn't that great? So then, what happens next is when the gospel enters into Europe, the core group begins to form, there is demonic oppression immediately. In the form of a demon possessed girl who began to follow these men around and and shout at them Oh, look, the the bears of the good news have come. The the guys who speak on God's behalf are here. And, And she followed them and she mocked them for days because. Satan hates church planting. We saw this exact same thing happen to us when when we came to Fayetteville and we began to proclaim the gospel. Listen, for for those of you who weren't here, um, half of our church lost their jobs like that. After that, um, we had difficult pregnancy after difficult pregnancy after difficult pregnancy. Again, Satan's strategic work is to um, attack the the finances so that the gospel mission can't go forward and then attack the children. Um, So what happened was um, God showed up in a huge and mighty way and he does the same thing here in this text. The apostle Paul has eventually had enough so he turns to this demon-possessed girl and he casts that demon out. Now, That demon that was in her helped her tell the future. So she was a slave girl, and her masters were making money off of her telling the future. Okay, So now that the Apostle Paul has cast this demon out, how do her masters feel? Very irritated. (laughs) The Apostle Paul has just cost them a lot of money. So what they do is they take these men, and they take them before the town officials. And they say, these men are encouraging us to do practices that are unlawful for Roman citizens. So the Apostle Paul is beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi, and so he quits and goes home. <laughs> so what the apostle Paul does is late that night him and and the people who are with him they begin to sing joyous songs of hymns to God as they are beaten and shackled in prison and they begin to sing and raise their voices to God and so what does God do he shows up he shows up in an earthquake and the walls begin to shake and the prison doors fling open and the shackles that had bound their feet they fall off and they are set free, and all of a sudden the jailer, he starts to freak out because he fears that all the prisoners has has left and that his boss is going to kill him, and so the jailer draws his sword as he's about to take his own life. The apostle Paul shouts, stop, and the jailer rushes in lights into the jail, and he lights up and sees that all of the prisoners are still there, and the jailer falls down on his face, and he asks the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle Paul proclaims, believe in Jesus and that jailer is saved, and the core group begins to grow. And so the church that's planted in Philippi um, is planted by a very affluent businesswoman, a demon-possessed girl, and a jailer. And that's the core group there that starts and plants this church um, in Philippi. Um, The Roman authorities come to the Apostle Paul. They, they find out that he's actually a Roman citizen. Um, so they apologize for beating him with rods and throwing him in jail and politely ask him to leave the town, um, which he does, but not before he goes um, and celebrates with Lydia um, what God had done and, and the, the church um, that God had planted That is how we get the church plant in Philippi. So some 10 years has passed since that great church plant um, in Philippi. Some 10 years has gone by and Paul is in jail yet again for preaching the gospel. He's in jail in Rome, and his friends in Philippi hear that he's in jail in Rome. And so through a man named Epaphroditus, they send him money uh, to comfort him. They send him money or provisions to comfort him in his imprisonment. And Epaphroditus almost dies just getting him um, the supplies that he needs while he's in jail. So uh, the book of Philippians um, is written, and it's given to this man, Epaphroditus, who came from Philippi to deliver him um, the necessities that he needed while in prison. The Apostle Paul writes this letter and gives it back to Epaphroditus so that he can then carry it um, back to Philippi. So we're assuming that the book is written uh, from 60, uh through 62 AD, some some point in that time. So what is the book of Philippians about? What does the apostle Paul have to say to his dear friends in Philippi? Philippians is four chapters, it's 104 verses, it's 2,381 words, it covers the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints. The apostle Paul can't get six verses in without talking about the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints. It covers the humility and the humiliation of Jesus. This book covers the lordship and the exaltation of Christ. Paul meditates on the believer's union with Christ and how nothing else matters. It covers justification by faith alone. It covers unity among the believers. It covers many, many more topics just in four chapters. And some say there is no inspiration of God's word. This is an amazing book. What's the main theme? Okay, what's the main theme? Asking them or thanking them for the money? Is it encouragement for them to stand firm or or maybe to let them know he's gonna be sending Timothy to them soon? Under and around all of these topics is one resounding theme that we are partnered in the gospel. We're partnered together together In the gospel, that this whole series could be titled partnership or fellowship in the gospel. That's the heart of Paul. That's what he's communicating to them, that we're together in this. We're partnered together in the gospel. The the problem is our modern thinking of partnership or fellowship. Now, um, most of us think that if you uh, show up to church early and talk to other believers before the church service has started, you just had you some good old fellowship, Okay, or or maybe you had um, you know the the, the covered dish uh, lunch supper thing after church was over and everybody got together and ate food. We we just had us some, some fellowship. Okay, or maybe you go and meet another brother or sister in Christ at Starbucks, or or maybe you go to dinner at another brother or sister in Christ's um, house. You go over there and and you've had fellowship. What the apostle Paul is talking about being. Fellowship together or partner together in the gospel is much, much, much deeper and more rich because the foundation is the gospel. You see, the apostle Paul, um, he's not saying that their connection or their partnership is in affinity, meaning we like the same, we're friends or we're partnered together because we like the same stuff. You know, that's how some people's friendships are formed. We like the same stuff. We, we have the same hobbies. Their partnership is not based on history, right? Oh, we've known each other for a real long time. Their partnership is not based on geography. We grew up in the same place. Their partnership is not based on their job. We work together. Their, their partnership is not based on attraction. I think you're good looking. Their partnership is based on a gospel-transformed life that then wants to go out and proclaim that same gospel-transforming message. That's what their partnership is built on. That's what their partnership is based in. That's the foundation of it. Now, in the long run, relationships that are based on affinity, geography, attraction, history, or your job will never be as strong and vibrant because their foundation is not in the gospel. We need to rethink the word fellowship. We need to rethink the word partnership, okay? This is where um, our good friend J.R. Tolkien gets the word um, that he uses for his movie. You remember it? The Fellowship of the Ring. When you think of the Fellowship of the Ring, you don't think about a bunch of guys sitting around uh, having coffee together. You don't think about a church social when you think about Fellowship of the Ring, right? You guys have seen the film. You think about men and women, arms locked together in a fight, in a progression, in a war, locked together in victory, locked together in joy. That's what you think of. Um, And so, between brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a foundation that is so much deeper than affinity, than history, than attraction, that... I have the best friends I've ever had in my whole life, and the reason is not because we're alike or we do the same things or or because we talk alike or because we, it's because we're partnered together in the gospel. Um, So why Philippians? Philippians. Why now are we traveling through this book? There's a thousand reasons. I I wanna give you three reasons why at this time, in this season um, as a church, why we're going through the book of Philippians. Number one, I want Gospel Community Church to be filled with people who are partnered together for the gospel. Listen, we've got a long, long road ahead of us, God willing, There are churches to plant. There are leaders that need to be trained and raised up. There's a whole kids' ministry filled with kids who, who need to hear the gospel. There are people in this city who are lost. There are people in this city who need to be discipled. There is much, much, much work to be done. And the only way that work is going to be accomplished is through a people partnered together in the gospel. That's the only way it's going to get done. That's the only way we're going to keep moving forward as a church is if we come together and say our partnership is not on the fact that we're the same age, we look alike, we smell alike, we like the same music. That's not, that's not our partnership. Our partnership is not in the style of music that we play. Our partnership is not even reformed theology. Our partnership is in the gospel. Um, and it's going to take that type of partnership to see this church movement go forward to join in the movement that's already happening we need a people we need a people who are partnered together in the gospel number two i want gospel community church to be a people who radiate vibrant joy in difficult circumstances where's the apostle paul writing this letter from jail, and the reoccurring motif that explodes from these pages is joy, rejoice, be joyful, join in with me in my joy, okay? Listen, this is the Apostle Paul, okay? The greatest missionary that ever was. You want to make the Apostle Paul joyful and happy, get a big, long road ahead of him with lots of people to preach the gospel to, get him on a boat, get him him traveling, going out there preaching the gospel, right? If you want to ruin his day, confine him to a cell, (laughs) But what he says is, I've, I, I'm filled, I'm full, I'm full of joy and hope. I, I want Gospel Community Church to be a people that in difficult circumstances radiate joy. I, 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 know, I know some of your circumstances. I, I, I don't know them like you know them. I, I know some of you are dealing with incredibly difficult things. And, and I want you, like the Apostle Paul, to be able to radiate this same type of joy. This letter beckons us to come and join in the fight for joy. This letter attacks all other sources of joy and centers on Jesus Christ as the source of joy. Listen to what it says in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, for the Apostle Paul, just, just knowing Christ, just to, just to know him and have a relationship with him and be able to pray to him and talk to him and, and just to be able to read his living word, that, that's enough for him. That's enough for the Apostle Paul. He doesn't need anything else. That is his source of joy. The Christian life is a fight for joy, not the rejection of joy. A life in Christ is not the rejection of satisfaction. It is the pursuit of ultimate satisfaction. That's what the Apostle Paul believes. That that if I can push all things aside and just pursue Christ, that's my source of joy. You see, for so long, I thought that's what Christianity was. It's the rejection of joy. All things fun. You got to get rid of that stuff. If you want to be a Christian, all things fun, everything that brings you joy, you got to get rid of that stuff and enter into this miserable, begrudging life of just white knuckling obedience. That, that's not the Apostle Paul's thinking. He's saying, You want joy? No Christ. No Christ. He puts aside his pedigree. He puts aside his possession. He, he puts aside his authority. He puts it all aside. He says, all that's everything, everything, I count it all as rubbish, just to know Christ. Think about the things that are most precious in your life. Think about if, if your house was on fire. What, what would you run in and get? <laughs> right? Think about your most prized possessions, the thing that means the most to you in the whole world. The apostle Paul says, that's rubbish. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to just knowing him. And listen, that's the source of his joy. That's how he's sitting in jail going, this is awesome. <laughs> because he knows Christ. And that's, that's, enough. that's enough for him. Number three, I want Gospel Community Church to be a people enamored with Jesus Christ. That This letter radiates with joy founded in Christ. I I want Gospel Community Church, when we get done with this book, I I want Gospel Community Church to be a people who are enamored with Christ. We We can say that this book is about being partnered in the gospel. We can say that joy is a reoccurring motif all throughout this book. Ultimately, this book is about Jesus. It is the noun that occurs more than any other noun in this whole book, Jesus Christ. That that's what he has to say. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words from Philippians chapter two, verses six through eleven. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess the glory of God the Father. You see, people who live a passionless and nominal Christian life have never met The Jesus Paul writes about. People who live a passionless, nominal, sitting on the sidelines type of Christian life have never met the Jesus Paul writes about and talks about. You see, what's happened in southern culture in particular, it's happened elsewhere, but in particular in southern culture, is that we've created a relationship with Jesus that costs you nothing and is an add-on to your already busy life. That's not Paul's Jesus. That's not his God, and that's not mine either. The the call here is to come and die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what it means to live the Christian life. It's not just an add-on to our already busy life, but when you come and die, when you come and die, you enter into the most amazing peace and joy that there ever is. So, let's get into verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He opens this letter by stating, Paul and Timothy this is what great leaders and great apostles do. They share authority. If anybody had claim to boast or brag, it's the apostle Paul. He says as much in this own letter. But he says Paul and Timothy. He shows a sense of shared leadership and shared authority. I think in the day of celebrity pastors, that there's much to be learned here. Paul and Timothy. I'm sharing my authority. I'm not the one who calls all the shots. I am not infallible, is what he's saying there. Um, listen, Gospel Community Church, um, I'm not the final authority here in this church. My word is not the final word. What I say does not always go. We're in the process of raising up godly men who can come alongside me, can keep me accountable because I'm a sinner. Um, and so what we want to see at this church um, is a group of men okay, who, who are leading the charge together. What this does, what, what the Apostle Paul here is doing and what this does in particular for our church, one, it protects me. If all of the decisions have to come back to me, okay, I, I, I'm either going to be in meetings until I die, um, I, I'm going to go absolutely nuts, I'm going to burn out, Um, or I'm gonna err into sin that would disqualify me, okay? So a group of men that help me bear the pastoral load um, protects me and my family. In addition, it protects this church, this shared authority. You see shared authority here, Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author, Timothy is the co-author. They're with him, shared authority. It also protects the church, okay? Again, I'm a sinner. I, I come up with bad ideas, okay, all the time, And so what happens is, amen, what happens is I need a group of men who are going to come around me and support me and say, that's an awesome idea, or bro, that's really dumb. Um, And and, and they have the authority to say that, Um, and and I don't just fire them and get rid of them, trade them to the Episcopalians, right? We we need a group of godly men in this church um, who can come alongside me, who can lift me up, Um, who can pray for me, who can come and correct me. Um, And so what we see here in the opening of this is the humility of Apostle Paul sharing leadership. Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy, and here's the title they give themselves, Servants of Christ Jesus. Um, This is amazing. The Apostle Paul, who was he formerly a servant of? Chasing down church members, chasing down Christians and killing them. He was a servant of Satan. The the Bible tells us that there are two groups. Servants of Satan, or sons of disaster, or there are sons of the Most High God, servants of Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. He was formerly a servant of Satan, and now he gets to boldly proclaim servant of Christ. That's who I am. I'm a servant of Christ. Now, seemingly, he doesn't look much like a servant of Christ right now. Why? Because he's in jail. It looks like he's a servant of Caesar. He's under Roman rule. He's bound in jail. But what the apostle Paul knows is that he serves a sovereign God who rules over Caesar and that if he's in prison right now, it's because God has him there. Listen, if God wanted him out of jail, he'd just do the same thing he did in Philippi. (laughs) he'd open up the gates and let him out. But the apostle Paul knows, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm here because this is where God has me and because God has me here, I can be joyful because God is in control. So, he claims that he is the servant of Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, who is he writing to? To all the saints, okay? Um, He's writing to Um, the the very, very upper echelon spiritual people in the church, right? (sighs) No, no. He's writing to all the saints, meaning the whole church, meaning that if you are a believer in Christ, listen, you're a saint. You don't have to go through the Vatican. You don't have to be approved by the Pope. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, period, paragraph. Okay, put it on your business card, write it in your job application, Okay, St. Kirk. You're a saint. God has called you. If you're a believer, God called you. God set you apart. God has made you holy. Therefore, you are a saint. Now, the danger in this is swing the pendulum to one side or the other. Many of us swing the pendulum way over to this side and say, huh, of course I'm a saint. Have you seen my Bible study, time? Have you heard me sing in the choir? Um, have you seen me witness? Have you said, of course I'm a saint. That's the pendulum way over here. That's where people who struggle with pride and deal with those type issues, they swing the pendulum way over here. Of course I'm a saint. There's the other side though that says, how dirty, rotten, you don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've experienced. There's no way God could call me a saint because I'm terrible. I'm dirty. I'm nasty. You see, here's the amazing thing about grace. It says to the prideful person, it's nothing that you did, it's all of grace. You have nothing to claim here. So it knocks the feet out from up under the prideful, and for the downcast who believe they're so disgusting, they're so sinful, God could never call them a saint, what what grace does for them is it does the same thing. It says it is all of God, it is nothing of you, it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've experienced, it doesn't matter what's been done to you, grace, grace, grace says you're a saint. So he's writing to the believers, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints who are at Philippi, we know this was the first church plant in Europe, to the overseers, okay, those are the elders of the church. He's writing to, um, the word overseer is interchangeable with the word elder or pastor, so he's writing to the group of men who are ruling over that church, to the overseers and to the deacons. Elders or overseers or pastors, what they do is they, they lead the charge with their words. They do the preaching. They do the teaching. They do the counseling. They, they do the where we going next, the forward progression of the church. And then what the deacons do, they're the ground level, tactical, this is how we're getting it done, people. Okay, elders lead with words, deacons lead with works. That's how that works. So he's writing to all the saints in Philippi, to the overseers, and to the deacons. What does he say to them? What does he say? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He loves them. Very simply put, he, he loves them. You read Corinthians, and it's kind of corrective a little. He's coming in with a strong hand of correction. You read Galatians, I mean, and they're just way off theologically. He's coming in real, real strong with them. You read Romans, and he's trying to set a clear precedent of theological trajectory. Here, all of that, it's not, there's not any correction in here, but it's almost unhindered love. There's love in his correction, <laughs> But here, it's almost unhindered love to say, every time I think about you guys, man, it's, he loves them. Let me tell you something about pastoral ministry. This is a letter from the heart of a pastor who loves his people. Pastoral ministry is a very dangerous thing. Here's why it's very dangerous. Because the call of a pastor is to love his people which means he has to get emotionally involved. It means that the pastor cries when his people cry. It means that he rejoices when his people rejoice. It means that the pastor's job is to be with his people, to shepherd them. And listen, here's why that's dangerous. Because uh, people leave the church all the time. People get irritated, people wanna throw rocks, okay? Listen, the bigger our church gets, the bigger target I have on my back, okay? The, the bigger my platform gets, the, the, the more <laughs> there are people who can throw rocks. That, that's, why, that's why pastoral ministry is dangerous because you, you're getting in the trenches with people and just loving them no matter what, no matter if they leave, no matter if they cuss you, no matter if they call you a cult leader or whatever, you're, you're just gonna love people. Now, it's a dangerous job, but listen, it's also the most joyous job there ever is. I love being your pastor. I love you guys. I love you with my whole heart. And listen, here's, here's what brings me the most joy. When you guys are joyful. That's why pastoral ministry is worth, that's why it's worth the risk. It's so worth the risk. Don't don't hear me saying it's so dangerous and terrible. That's not what I'm saying. It is so worth the risk because when you guys, when when I see you love Jesus, when I see you reading your word, when I see your kids growing up in, in houses that love Jesus, your joy brings me the greatest joy that there ever is. I love being your pastor. And here we see the heart of Paul who loves these people in Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Their partnership is founded in the gospel. It is deepened in the gospel. The gospel is what they're working from It's what they're working for. So a couple of application points, and I'm out of your way. Number one, read Philippians. (laughs) Read it. Read it a bunch. Read it a bunch. I've got this really cool app on my phone. It's called Uversion. Everybody should get one. You need a smartphone. Download an app. Welcome to the 21st century. What the app does is it actually reads it to me, okay, What's awesome about that is if I'm driving, okay, it's dangerous to read if you're driving. Um, As I'm driving, I can have it read to me. Um, As I'm working in the garage, I can have it read to me. I've listened to the book of Philippians, I don't know how many times now, just all the way through, just, just listening to it all the way through, all the way through, all the way through. Um, sometimes I'll let, I'll let the phone read to me as I'm, I'm putting my eyes on it and just reading it through, reading it through, reading it through. I would encourage you, beg you, plead with you. As we travel through this book, read the book of Philippians. Read it again and again and again. Read it over and over. I promise you, if you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text, that's what the Holy Spirit does, you'll read it through one time and you'll get something and you'll read it through again. You'll get something else and you'll read it through again and it, and it just gets more rich and more rich and more sweet and more sweet. So, my call to you is, over the next 14 weeks, read it again and again and again and again. And watch it. Watch it become more and more and more sweet. Number two, pray for me. Pray for me as we travel through this book. If, this, if the sermons in this series are to bring life to you, they must kill me first. If the sermons are to bring life to you, they must kill me first. First. Meaning, I don't want these sermons to be lectures. That's not what we're here to do. Again, the job of a pastor is to go to the text, allow the text to work on his heart, to to lay his heart to waste, to, to reveal sin in his life, to call the pastor to understanding and repentance, so that when I stand here and preach, the same thing is happening to you. It's calling you to understanding. It's calling you to repentance. But it, it must happen in the heart of the preacher. It must happen in my heart. So pray for me because I want these sermons to bring life to you. And if so, they, they in a way, in a way, need to kill me first. Number three, uh, pray for the hearts of the people in the church. Pray that as we pour out from this great book that hearts and minds would be open, wide open to receive it, hungry for the word, week after week coming to drink deeply um, of God's word. So pray for um, the hearts of all of our people. I wanna close by reading this, okay? By by reading, I'm gonna read three through 11, um, and and then I want to pray it as well because it's it's a prayer. I'll close this way. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the last day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and also be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, it is my prayer, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more with the knowledge and all discernment. Father, may the people of Gospel Community Church May they approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Please, please let Gospel Community Church be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Father, may our church, may the lives of these people be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And Father, may glory, may you receive glory and praise. May we usher out, may we pour out, may we be a people who bring glory to God, and may we be a people who praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.